是台湾人，台湾人，台湾人。Welcome to Taiwan Yuan, where you'll hear stories of Taiwanese innovators, makers, and advocates. You can now support this project on Patreon and help me think of questions to ask guests. I'm your host Cindy. Today we're meeting with the one, the only Audrey Tang, Taiwan's digital minister, my personal hero. <laughs> Audrey and I cover social innovation, Taiwan's COVID response, plus why it was so effective. And what makes Taiwan's democracy so special? Let's get into it. Hi, Audrey. Tell us about yourself and your connection to Taiwan. Hi, I'm Audrey Tang, Taiwan's Digital Minister in charge of social innovation, open government, and also youth engagement. I was born in Taiwan in 1981, and nowadays I'm in charge of the National Action Plan of the Taiwan Open Government Effort. Upon which, of course, we fought the pandemic off with no lockdowns, and also fought the infodemic off with no takedowns. And we have this campaign called hashtag Taiwan Can Help, where we share this Taiwan model with our international friends. Yeah, I was just learning from you that Taiwan can help. I thought it was driven by the government, and the president Tsai led that donation of masks to other countries. But it turns out you were saying the citizens got involved too. That's right. So in social innovation. We say it's everyone's business with everyone's help. So of <laughs> course, President Taiwan did donate a lot of masks, but so did more than seven hundred thousand citizens, which dedicated more than seven million medical masks out of their、uh, rationing. Because we are still rationing out masks every two、yeah. weeks, and whether you're an adult or a child nowadays. And so, if you have plenty of masks at home and you don't collect your ration mask, you can actually dedicate it using a very easy to use app, the National Health Insurance app,、uh, to dedicate for international humanitarian aid. So you can check out actually the full list of citizens that participate in it in this website, Taiwan Can Help That Us, which is not from the government, but rather from like Erinia and Adi and other YouTubers. Yes, I love the community.、Oh. You were part of the sunflower movement.、Mm -hmm. Can you share with the audience what was happening during that time and how you got involved?、Mm -hmm. Sure. So it was a pretty large demonstration with half a million people on the street at one time, and many more online. And the trigger point was a trade deal with Beijing. It's called the Cross Strait Service and Trade Agreement, or CSSTA, which was being passed by the parliament without substantial deliberation. Now the people who occupy the parliament. Many of them, young students, started actually their own deliberation. So it's a demonstration in a sense of demo, not in a、mm -hmm. sense of a protest or a riot. And so I was involved by providing essentially live streaming technical service to、oh. not only the people who occupied the parliament, but also along with many other people in the Gabzir community. All the different NGOs that help occupy the parliament. There were more than twenty of them, each deliberating a different aspect of the CSSDA. There's、uh, NGOs focusing on human rights, on labor rights, environmental issues. There's even one focusing on our then new 4G infrastructure and whether we need to allow PRC, that's People's Republic of China regime, components in our 4G network. Now nowadays, everybody else is talking about this, but we were、mm -hmm. discussing that in 2014 and reached a rough consensus saying no to those PRC components, and so. It was、uh -huh. a very happening time, but the main lesson is that half a million people on the street can actually agree on something, and so the Occupy was a victory. Was it the first demonstration you were a part of? 
No, actually, I think not even two weeks before the sunflower, there was another very large parade in the protest of the then new fourth nuclear plant. And we were also there to provide broadband communication. And I remember it was raining very hard that day. And so there turned out like people who could actually walk to the end of the parade is um, actually arguably smaller than what the organizers imagined. But many people still care about this issue. Mm-hmm. So they watch live streaming. Now, mm-hmm. in early 2014, live streaming is very much a new phenomenon. And so people really want to feel that they were there. And so we also helped setting up the live streaming technologies for those demonstrators. Mm-hmm. Okay. Well, as a self-proclaimed anarchist, mm-hmm. Which, conservative anarchist. Oh, conservative anarchist. Yeah. So, well, the internet definition <laughs> is to be free from governing bodies. Mm-hmm, so mm-hmm. I am curious, and I know a lot of people have been curious, why mm-hmm. did you choose to become a government official? Sure. So I call myself a lowercase minister, meaning that I mostly create common values out of different positions, but I never gave a single order as a minister. Neither did I take order from anyone. Mm -hmm. So by voluntary association, people learn to see that it's not just about a top-down, lockdown, (laughs) takedown way of governance when it comes to the pandemic or the infodemic. Maybe the internet norms, which is a very Taoist norm, which what we call rough consensus running code, is actually a superior model to tackle those very complicated problems. Because otherwise, people do not have a good first-hand experience on how, why to wear a mask, wash your hands, and things like that. And the only way to do that is not to impose very heavy fines, but rather to explain the science. And then come up with very cute dog memes that says, wear a mask to protect yourself. And once that idea Mm -hmm. was spread to a sufficient amount of people, you do not actually need a top-down order. Mm -hmm. And people will actually wear a mask all the time to protect their own face. On their own hands. I call myself a, a lowercase minister. The lowercase means that I mostly just listen to people and give such advice, but I do not give people orders and right. I don't take orders either. That was the point. And I noticed that I think somewhere it says without an office as well. That's right. So I have, of course, this place where we're recording this podcast in, but most of the time, if not, I'm not touring Taiwan, I'm in the Social Innovation Lab, uh, mm-hmm. which is in the heart of Taipei City. And it's a park, mm. actually, we tore down the walls so anyone can walk in. Uh, so next time, if you come to Taipei, uh, do visit the Social Innovation Lab. What happens in the Social Innovation Lab day to day? So um, we have international visitors. <laughs> I think this is the mayor of Prague City and Sydney Krippe. And uh, we also have a lot of communications with people around Taiwan. So I tour around Taiwan during the social innovation tours. And I talk mm-hmm. with local people while connecting through two-way telepresence to the 12 different ministries people in the social innovation lab. So just by going to the social innovation lab, they can connect to all the different social innovation units around Taiwan and actually participate in a face-to-face-ish meeting uh, (laughs) with the local community and local people uh, Mm. to make sure that there's sufficient bandwidth both ways to uh, make account of all the related policies and so on. So for for example, co-ops, social entrepreneurs, people who are in the local but have a really good idea that's worth spreading, uh, Mm -hmm. this actually makes it possible for them to reach the central government very quickly and in a very Mm -hmm. uncompressed form. So most of the people in the social innovation lab are not from the government. No, they're, they're not. 
they are at any given time, maybe 30, 40 different teams working on any of the SDG goals or startups and things like that. So mm-hmm. it's like a small incubator, but mm-hmm. anyone can also run events there. In a lot of the talks and tours you've given, you've talked about the importance of trust for building democracy. How do you help citizens trust our government? I don't. I help the government trust the citizens. <laughs> I love that. I mean, the citizens are free to trust anyone, and we're not interfering with that. But when we talk about social innovation, the public service need to trust the citizens. For example, when we're reaching out the mosques, as I mentioned before, nowadays it's 10 per two weeks. We really want a way for people to trust each other mm-hmm. and for the government officials to trust that there's nobody like stockpiling or holding the mosque and so on. And it just so happens that there was a uh, person named Howard Wu from Thailand City who mm-hmm. invented this map on which you can see the life availability of medical masks in each and every store and colored green if there's still some in stock and color red if it's almost gone, right? So you don't have to queue in vain. You can go straight to the pharmacy or convenience store that still have some masks. Now, imagine if it relied as it did initially in the beginning of February the citizens' input on crowdsourcing, then the numbers may be accurate, it may be inaccurate, so the trustworthiness will fluctuate depending on the availability of uh, volunteers. But I talked then to the head of cabinet, to the premier, we talked to the National Health Insurance Agency, and we dedicated through open data every 30 seconds an update of the real-time availability of the pharmacies medical mask stock and published it as an open ABI to Howard War and many other civic technologists. And so because of that, when you're queuing in line, you can actually check in real time the person queuing before you, how many masks did they actually buy? And so the pharmacist of course, has a lot of trustworthiness because they keep the system running, but so did anyone procure some mask from the nearby point of pharmacy because they are in essence, part of the national auditing team, right? It's part of the accountability. So this is what I mean by trusting citizens with open data and API. Mm-hmm. And that's just such a great example of, you know, obviously using technology to solve the COVID issues, but mm-hmm. also government and citizens working together, in my opinion, mm-hmm. right, to provide data, which is mask mm-hmm. availability and distribution mm-hmm. that's so important to both parties. Yeah. Mm-hmm. So more about that. Taiwan did become famous for its COVID response in 2020. What do you think were the key components of Taiwan's success? I summarize it as three pillars, fast, fair, and fun. (laughs) Uh, So I talked a little bit about rationing with the fairness part, but the fun part is also very important. We have a national spokesdog of the Central Epidemic Command Center. The name is Chai. Um, I didn't know that. Right, so it's a Shiba Inu, very cute. And the Zongchai is, as you can see here, reminding you to Aww. buy some masks. But why would you buy some masks? Well, a mask protects you against your own hands, right? And wash your hands frequently. Now, this is a very good message because it doesn't appeal to altruistic intentions. This appeals only to rationals of interest. Yeah. Like, why wouldn't you want to protect against your own hands, right? So this also makes this very easy to spread and really because it's very cute. Uh, Uh And also social distancing, for example, when you're indoor, please keep 
three Shiba Inu Sabe, when your elder keep two Shiba Inu Sabe. Again, <laughs> you probably cannot unsee this <laughs> after you, you saw this, right? So this, again, it. makes a great impression uh, and it's translated to many different languages. So the fun part, which what we call humor over rumor, is also very important. Mm. But also, of course, and rightly so, attributed the main reason why Taiwan did so well is that we acted pretty much before anyone else. Yeah. We acted last January, right? So that's uh, mm. one year ago, right? Mm-hmm. Um, so on the 1st of January, we already started health inspections for flight passengers coming in from Wuhan. And that's thanks to the whistleblower, Dr. Li Wenliang from Wuhan, whose uh, social media post made the rounds in Taiwan in the Taiwanese equivalent Reddit PTT. But of course, Dr. Li's message was silenced in Wuhan for a while. So he did save the Taiwanese, even maybe not a lot of Wuhan people. Okay, so going back a little bit to, you mentioned GovZero in the Sunflower Movement. So what is GovZero? How was it first formed and what has it become today? Sure. So GovZero, broadly speaking, is a domain name. It's a domain (laughs) hack. It's something that people registered. A lot of them were and still are my very good friends around the end of 2012. And the domain name G0V.TW basically says that for any digital service that's done by the government, which always ends in the GOV.TW, the civil society can do better. The social sector with the slogan, ask not why nobody is doing this. You are that nobody. Uh, oh, me- love it. Yeah, meaning that anytime you see a government service, maybe about mask rationing availability display, that's not working very well. You're invited to fork the government's mm-hmm. pronunciation. <laughs> fork the government yes. and make a alternative, such as by changing join the GOV, the TW in your browser, change the O to a zero, you get into join the G zero V, the TW, which is the alternate imagination of the government that is always open source. So the government, once we see that, hey, the Gov zero really has a really good idea, like the mask availability map, we would just merge it back in. Mm-hmm. So forking the code until you merge it. That's, that's exactly yeah. right. Can you share some of your favorite projects? I know it might be hard mm-hmm, <laughs> from yeah. GovZero community. Sure. So the inaugural project, which CEO Gao and many friends of mine who participate, is called Government Budget Visualization. And the project, very simply put, is supercharges citizens with the power of visualization mm-hmm. uh, so that government spending can be supervised. And you can zoom in on different perspectives of budget data, like historical trend, cross-department comparison, public opinion, and also component breakdown by taxation, a category, or by government spending, and so on. And the great thing is that I mentioned joining the GOV.TWRI, so this uh, civic tech project from 2012, eventually become part of our government website. So now this is a real government <laughs> website, and you can actually see the spending exactly the way the wow. zero people initially imagined it, but yeah. uh, with an additional requirement that for those more than 1,300 different projects, the public service actually responds to your public commentary. So what used to be a like a public discussion board now is an institutionalized two-way communication <laughs> with all the public service. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. I personally love the data viz too, of especially spending budget. And I think for me, uh, looking at different smart cities around the world, that's definitely one of the most beneficial ways they've adopted definitely. technology. And when, yeah, and when the citizen, the social sector creates those visualizations, yeah, it's, more it's not just smart cities, it's smart citizens. Yes, exactly. What's V Taiwan 
And why is that an impactful part of the democratic process in Taiwan? Sure. So V-Taiwan is one of the projects that started in the GovZero Hackathon, proposed, I think it was late 2014, by Minister Jacqueline Tsai. At the time, the minister was a portfolio in charge of law and about adapting law to the cyberspace. And actually, we are in what used to be her office. <laughs> so, wow. right. so basically, what we did at the time in V-Taiwan in 2014-15 is to co-create a online-offline consultation process that brings together the ministries, elected representatives, scholars, experts, and civil society organizations, citizens, and business leaders. And the process has tackled issues like the UberX issue, Airbnb, FinTech Sandbox, and things like that, making sure that people can surface the best ideas that take care of everyone's feelings. Um, Mm -hmm. which is a step that's often forgotten in consultative processes. Mm. Um, And to date, it has worked more than 28, if I'm not mistaken, projects, and the vast majority of which has led to decisive government action. And the UberX or Airbnb, was that citizens opposing the entry, entry of these businesses? Yeah, the UberX case is very interesting because... While on the surface, you see a lot of very polarized debate. For example, what really is sharing economy, right? One part says, you know, UberX was not offering carpooling, so it can't be qualified as Mm -hmm. sharing. But on the other hand, there's people who say, no, they're they're time sharing. There's spare time, right? (laughs) So those uh, discussions tend to go nowhere. But at the time, UberX was introducing a new service of people who don't have professional driver licenses who nevertheless strive for profit um, uh-huh. right so in their spare time but for some people those spare time turns out to be like 16 hours a day so is a spare time right so that um, poses a problem and to not just Taiwan but many other jurisdictions around the world now Taiwan unlike pretty much any other Asian jurisdiction nowadays Uber operates legally as a local fleet the Q taxi and uh, there's also line taxi. There's also, of course, other taxi fleets that use the Uber model of essentially app-based hailing, not hailing on the street. But it's all very fair competition. They can't undercut each other. There's like insurance and also, most wow, importantly, the professional different. driver license requirement is kept. So all the Uber drivers nowadays are professional drivers who can choose between the Q taxi fleet and many other taxi fleets. And so it also improves their bargaining power and so on. So that consensus was gathered on the Polis platform with the VTOWN project around 2015. Wow. I did notice that with the Ubers here. They all mm-hmm. have the taxi they are profiles. Taxis. Right, they, they are. are. Yeah. So, you know, we've already talked about a lot of examples, Mm -hmm. but how would you say we're reinventing democracy Mm -hmm. in Taiwan? Sure. Well, just we as a lot of people, certainly not just us or the V-Taiwan project or the GovZero community. I think the reinvention of democracy is hinged on this idea that democracy itself is a technology. Because Taiwan only had our first presidential election in 1996, which Uh is already after the World Web gets popular. So oh. there's many people who think about internet and about democratic governance in the same generation, really the same bunch of people. Mm. So unlike other more time-honored republics and democracies with hundreds of years of tradition, in Taiwan, we see democracy in the very beginning, 
as something like semiconductor design. <laughs> you can, you can, change, you can <laughs> adjust, you can try different layouts. It's yes. not just about uploading three bits every four years, every person. It's called voting, by the way. But also about retail one is also about a joint platform where you can start petitions, participatory budgeting and sandboxes, presidential hackathon, many other things that improve the bandwidth of democracy. Wow, I never thought about that way, right? Because democracy is new to us. I want to know because you know that I typically I live in Toronto, Canada, and I have been a part of the civic hack community there. But I still look at Taiwan with envy <laughs> because I just think Taiwan has been especially successful in creating impact and also involving the community. Why do you think that is compared to maybe civic innovation in other countries? I think if it's a new system, it's easier to imagine new possibilities. If it's a system that has been around for hundreds of years, the in sheer inertia makes it harder yeah. to imagine new possibilities. That's just the nature of things. On the other hand, there are parts of the Taiwanese model of innovation that can be shared very easily. For mm. example, the cute spokesdog. You can probably copy it <laughs> overnight, right? The Central okay. Epidemic Command Center with their daily like 2 p.m. communications with this hotline 1922 whereby anyone can call and people did call to the call center and with more than 95% pickup rate, they will handle any and all suggestions. There was a young boy who called, I think, mid-April last year saying that you're rationing masks and all I get is pink medical mask or other boy Oh. Classmates of mine wear blue and I have pink only and I don't want to go to school uh, and or I don't want to wear a mask. So do something about it, right? And the very next day on the daily 2 p.m. press conference, all the medical offices were pink. Oh. Um, and uh, Minister Chen Shizhong even said Pink Panther was his childhood hero. So suddenly the boy <laughs> became the most hip boy in the class for only he had a color that the heroes wear and also heroes heroes wear, right? So that's um, actually is a great story of gender mainstreaming because it flipped the color around and yes. a lot of brands just started calling themselves pink. Um, <laughs> and, and that is, I think, responsive governance. Regardless of how long is your democratic institution's tradition, you can actually um, mm. take a page from this. Yeah, wow. And one thing I want to ask you around the assumption of Taiwan's success is a lot of people think it's because of its smaller size. And I think in some interviews, people have asked you about that as well, which mm -hmm. is, can what's been done in Taiwan scale is sort mm -hmm. of like the question people have asked. What well, do you think of size? Well, Taiwan only seems small because we have broadband as a human right. So no matter where you are in Taiwan, you're guaranteed to have 10 megabits per second for just 15 US dollars per month for mm -hmm. unlimited data connection both ways. Otherwise, it's my fault personally. So I think this then guarantees that any point in Taiwan can access the sort of digital services that I just illustrated and also feels much more close because anyone can start a two-way video conferencing without worrying about their bandwidth cost and without worrying about whether they have a Wi-Fi connection or not. Mm. Right? So that makes Taiwan seem small, even though we're actually 24 million people. It's true. It's not that much smaller than the Canadian population. <laughs> A part of your definition of success is that everyone is digitally connected in Taiwan. That's right. Yes. Wow. It's called broadband as a human right. Mm, thank you. I enjoy it very much. <laughs> okay. So how is doing this work personally important to you? And is there anything that surprised you about your job and where you mm -hmm. are today? Yeah. 
this is fun, right? I'm doing this work for fun. And I think the most surprising thing is how innovative public service is. From the outside, before I worked with the government, I thought the most innovative people are maybe in the free software movement, in the open source communities, in the business sector, and so on. But it turns out that the current public service are every bit as innovative as the other sectors. It was just that the public service regulations and laws and norms prevented them from voicing out their innovations. So a lot of my work is just to ask them to work out loud. To ask the colleagues that enter my office, as you saw on your way here with the post-it notes and all that, <laughs> uh, to learn the importance of sharing their work publicly, not only with the citizens but also with other ministries and other agencies and other levels of government. So surprisingly, if I said, you know, you have to do something, then they do exactly as I said. But because I never gave orders, I'd say just do whatever, but share the results, and I will absorb the risk if things go wrong. Well, people started proposing a lot of very innovative ideas, including the cute dog.、Mm-hmm. So you took away this perception of risk for them to be free.、Mm-hmm. Yeah, if it goes wrong, it's all my fault. <laughs> In general, how has your、mm-hmm. relationship with Taiwan、mm-hmm. changed? Yeah, with the COVID, I think a lot of people saw that Taiwan is really a great place to not only enjoy a healthier life. That you can go to the pride parade.、Uh, mm-hmm. My friends are not surprised about the pride, but they are about the parade. <laughs> so, <laughs>、yeah. so there's a、yes. like record number of like I think almost two thousand people now getting the Taiwan Gold Card, which you can check out at TaiwanGoldCard.com. Which is essentially you can bring your family, enjoy health insurance, and stay without having to work or invest in a Taiwanese company. We just want talents、mm-hmm. uh, here. And there's a record number also of more than 250k people who lived abroad now returning to Taiwan within the past year because of our COVID success,、mm-hmm. right? So all this resulted in a different relationship. Like Taiwan used to be a place that's more focused on hardware,、mm-hmm. like the Taiwan Semiconductor, and less so on software and services. But now it's seen as a very large hub about. Not only AI, but all sort of digital transformation and services and so on, and a truly transcultural place—not just our twenty national languages, but also a lot of people from all over the world now just working in their original work, no matter where it is, but choosing to live in Taiwan. In the same vein of you mentioning, you know, the two hundred fifty thousand people who have come back to Taiwan. I definitely see this fire in the Taiwanese people, you know, locally or abroad, recently. And what advice would you give them for people who want to be more involved in Taiwan's future? First of all, if you don't yet have a gold card, <laughs> get a gold <laughs> card.、Um, check out TaiwanGoldCard.com, especially if you work in the arts or in the science and technology. The requirements is now so relaxed <laughs> that, that you're practically, especially. The science and technology regulation now say, if you have the potential to contribute to science and technology, then you are eligible. <laughs> Which is like pretty much everybody. Potential.、Right? <laughs> I love Anyone that. Anyone who has the potential. <laughs> are, so you just have、eligible. to believe in yourself first. Yeah, exactly. Exactly. <laughs> so, so apply for a gold card if you don't have one, and also、uh, think about the community in Taiwan,、mm-hmm. not just. Like traditional people living in Taiwan, which is a great community to tap into, but also the expats, the people in the Formosa, and、uh, many <laughs> other communities. Which starting this year, 
actually their、uh, residence certificates, their resident cards, where we call the ARC, the alien residential cards, are now renumbered to match the national ID number, so、mm. that on the second letter, it's no longer a letter; it's a digit, like the Taiwanese national ID.、Oh, so、okay. this is part of the campaign that I call also Taiwanese. So you don't have to give up your original passport. You don't have to give up your identity if you're a citizen of another country. But you can, with Go Card and many other measures, become gradually also Taiwanese.、Mm. So just kind of focusing on you a little bit. You're a transgender woman、mm-hmm. in Taiwan.、Mm-hmm. Can you share your journey with us? Sure. So I went through two puberties. Right, once when I was like twelve or thirteen, I never developed. Quite so much as other adolescent boys. Later on, I would get my testosterone level tested, and the doctor said that I'm like a 80 year old man, which means that、oh. it's like between the natural levels of an adolescent boy and an adolescent girl, physically speaking, which makes it easier for me to go through the second puberty when I was 24, 25 years old, taking hormonal replacement. Without having to take a lot of anti-testosterone because my level is very low to begin with,、uh, and so I developed then for another couple of years the female puberty. So in my mind, I don't have this like category like half the population is closer to me and half the population is farther away from me. I see my community as Homo sapiens, large、mm-hmm. community.、Mm-hmm. But I would say for Taiwan. Even though it has become a beacon of LGBTQ rights,、Definitely. there's still so much as a society for them to、mm-hmm. learn about the different groups.、Mm-hmm. So, how could Taiwan be more accepting or grow more aware of、mm-hmm. the different LGBTQ groups?、Mm-hmm. Well, I think last year was the first time that we actually had a transgender pride. So, next to the LGBTQ pride in general, so that really helps the visibility. And also, the marriage equality law really helps because we choose to legalize marriage equality by saying that it's a marriage between two individuals, but not between the two families. And this is after one constitutional court ruling and two referenda、uh, that jointly said that in Taiwan, although there is two different interpretations of marriage, one says it's between families with the two individuals just acting as representatives. And one says that it's between individuals, and the families may or may not want to know, right? So it's two different, like by ceremony and by registration norms. And when legalizing marriage equality, we say we legalize the bylaws, but not the in-laws. So <laughs> when two same-sex couples wed, their families do not wed.、Uh, mm-hmm. And I think this is a really good, like intergenerational solution, because like all the best social innovations, it. Takes where it had tension, and、yeah. then like the Eurasian plate bumping into the Philippine Sea plate, or the other way around, which caused earthquakes. It also caused the Jade Mountain or Savia Yushan to raise. I think、uh, it rises about two and a half centimeters per year, and so this higher vantage point, like legalizing the marriage by marrying the bylaws but not the、mm. in-laws, it created a new vantage point, like. I like to call it the upwing direction that、uh-huh. makes the generations closer to each other by respecting their own positions and each other's positions while creating new values, and that will also help everybody to be more accepting、yeah. toward everybody else. That was a poetic description.、Uh-huh. We've just entered twenty twenty one. What are you most looking forward to 
either achieving or just the kind of impact that mm-hmm. we could have this year? Well, of course, I look forward to assisted vaccination. And uh, I think it, there's some really good sign. Not only is the like domestic vaccination research and development going quite well, but also the AstraZeneca procurement seems to be quite successful. And what's more is that last year, around the end of last year, there's record number of people who volunteer to vaccinate against the seasonal flu, which means that there's a lot of people really waiting very eagerly to get vaccinated. And so, yeah, I'll probably do whatever I can help to make sure that the experience of getting vaccinated is smooth and also secure. If you're curious about Taiwan's impact during the COVID-19 pandemic, you can check out taiwancanhelp.us. Or if you want to learn more about GovZero, go to g0v.tw and see the latest projects from the civic tech community. Remember to rate, subscribe, and support us on Patreon. Thank you for listening. Taiwan Jiao!